But it's curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. In this episode, I'm speaking with Steve March, who is, although maybe lesser known in the public sphere, what he's created with Aletheia, which we'll get into, is, to my mind, a a revolutionary invention in the realm of human development and the way that we orient to personal growth. I think this, this might be one of the most important conversations that I've had on this podcast, and it's so densely packed that I've really listened to this twice myself. There are a couple of pieces that Steve shares, which I'd love to highlight here before we dive in. And the first is his distinction between what he calls self-development and self-unfoldment. And this really was a revelation for me and I think points to why so much of the personal development industry and our individual efforts to improve ourselves are really doomed from the start. And the second piece is his innovation of what he calls the four depths model. This was so fascinating for me in that it brought together practices like working with internal family systems and non-dual work, which I'd previously thought had been completely separate from each other. And finally, towards the end, Steve shares four really actionable principles for exploring his ideas and methodology in your own life. I really hope that you appreciate this conversation as much as I did. And if you do find it insightful, please consider taking a moment to share this with friends, other people, and help spread these incredible ideas. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast, and there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one, and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer, and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atiyah. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and APOB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, my most recent set of results show that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. 
And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a, a mirror to my own internal state. And the plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend doing this deliberate cold exposure for about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. And this episode is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm, conquer reactivity, and build emotional regulation. Our fourth cohort will be running in April 2024, and applications are open right now. And my sense is that if this conversation and others like it on the podcast resonate with you, then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. This curriculum represents my attempt to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. It's run in an intensive cohort-based way, since this is in my experience the most efficient way to not only learn the information, but also embody the protocols in your everyday life. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep, the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 750 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join the next cohort at nsmastery.com. That's nsmastery.com. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Steve. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. How are you feeling in this moment in three words? Excited, present, and delighted. Beautiful. Well, the question that I love to begin these conversations with is, do you think that you were an exceptionally curious child? And if so, do you remember something that you were curious about? Yeah, I would say that I lived in my childhood, I lived in more or less a constant state of curiosity and wonder. And there was a time in my life when that kind of vanished and as an adult and then kind of reemerged. But I was the, am the oldest of four children. And so I spent a lot of time by myself in nature when I was little. My sister came along, my first sister came along when I was four years old. And even when she was a baby, I would still spend most of my time alone because I couldn't, I couldn't play with her yet in the, in the backyard. And so I was constantly curious about uh, every little bug and animal and plant and season and, you know, uh, bloom and things like that. So, yeah, that's, that's fun to remember that actually. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. And to give some context for listeners, 
What was the inception of Aletheia as it now stands and your, your coaching training? Like, how did this pretty expansive vision unfold from your own internal explorations? Yeah, there's, there's many different origin stories for Aletheia. You know, the, the one that I most commonly share is just my own story of stepping into the coaching world, getting trained as a coach. I started coaching in 2000, and I went through my first coach training, beautiful training, learned a lot, you know, it was an intensive year, and probably like most coaches, I got to the end of it, and I felt, I felt like an absolute beginner still, you know, and I felt like I really needed to know more. I needed to develop more. And so, like many, I went uh, to other coach trainings, and and I really spent about the first decade of being a coach, going through from training to training, learning different mo coaching modalities, psychotherapeutic modalities, somatic modalities, and forms of spiritual inquiry, all kinds of different things. And in that journey, I started to ask a couple questions. And one was I noticed that all of these different approaches they all worked, but they were so different from each other. And I was trying to understand what explains that. Because I think that for me, I was kind of naive in the sense that I, I thought, well, you know, we're all working with human beings. So human beings are human beings, and we probably just have variations on a theme. Like everybody's got a way to do it. We pretty much all do it the same way with subtle variations, except what I was finding was vast differences except they all worked. So I was like, so what does that say about what a human being is, right? But I also noticed that they all failed to work. That sometimes they just, they just, you know, it was really powerful with one person and completely fell flat with another person. And I was trying to understand, well, what explains that? And it was sort of like hanging out in that question really for a couple years of just trying to understand what explains what I was actually experiencing that I suddenly had a kind of integrating insight. And the integrating insight was they all work at different depths. And once I had that insight, based upon the range of methods that I had learned, pretty quickly, literally within probably a couple hours, I had articulated what's now a, a core of our curriculum, which is the model of four depths. I could see that the methodologies that I had learned all kind of fit into a four-depth sort of model. And at the time, I was very integrally informed and, um, you know, a big student of Ken Wilber's work and, and integral theory and practice in general. So my immediate thought was, how can we create a method that integrates all these depths, that integrates these? And because of the, the strong sort of adult development model sort of thinking in that world, I made the assumption that people would kind of you know, I'd work with them at one depth, and then maybe after several months or maybe several years, they would graduate to a deeper depth of work. And then I would switch methodologies with them and work with them in a deeper way and so on. But what I actually found once I had the sensitivity to depth was that the clients were actually uh, spontaneously shifting up and down in depth in the span of a single coaching conversation. And so that idea that sort of developmental idea, I really had to let go of. And I do see the work that 
we do in Aletheia as developmental, but it's really a different way of conceiving how you go about that than what these traditional models of adult development seem to describe. And so what I had to do in Aletheia, because clients were shifting spontaneously up and down in these depths, is to take the methods I had learned and really kind of reformulate them, you know, uh, include new pieces, drop out other pieces, uh, articulate them in the context of the other depths, etc., to create a method that could seamlessly shift with the client and always be able to meet them at the depth that they're at in a skillful way. And essentially that was my conclusion is that when you have a method, and I could see like lots of methods are kind of depth specialists, like they really work well when you're at that depth. But the second you wander out of that depth, now it seems sort of clunky. It doesn't really work as well. There's something that you're missing. And that really explains why every method works, why they're so different, but it also explains why they don't work sometimes. And so that was really the, the initial integrating insight that had me create this, this style of working. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm honestly in, in awe of, of what you've created with this uh, very integrated model. And a question that just, just arose for me as you were speaking was, um, are these, uh, these progress through these different depths? And we can kind of go into what these, what these are. Is it always linear? Or I, like, I, I could imagine if you know, n experiencing non-duality is like, say, the fourth level of depth like i know some people can almost like skip right there but then maybe they bypass some of the the more emotional processing pieces so do, do you see it as people like moving in a linear progression like up and down or can there be like maybe like jump between them in, in different times it depends what style of transformation you're you're working with so one of the things that unfolded as i started to work with the, these four depths which which we can name here really just quickly so we have language in, and I, we can come back and define them if you want. You know, the shallowest depth is the depth of parts. Next down, uh, next deeper is the depth of process. Next is the depth of presence and absence. And then the deepest one that you just named is the depth of non-dual presence. And so when I started working in this way, most of us are really inhabiting the depth of parts where we see the world as separate, we see ourselves as separate from each other, we even when we peer inwardly, we can see separation, you know, and this is what parts work is great for. We can see that, you know, there's a part of us that really trying to not feel hurt, that's protective. We have many of those because we also have many parts of us that have felt hurt, you know, rejected or abandoned or betrayed or not valued or not loved or things like that. And so when we start to work in this way, uh, very often there is a kind of linear progression from the depth of parts to the depth of process as parts release. We naturally sink down as we flow with process that sort of takes us towards the realization of something that's essential about ourselves. Uh, and so there is that kind of linear flow. And what I started to realize, though, is that's just one style of transformation. There are, in fact, at least in the Aletheia Metapsychology, three other styles of transformation and that can be articulated in terms of how we inhabit and how we work with the depths. And so the style I just described where we flow from parts to process to presence and absence to non-dual presence 
is a style of gradual unfoldment. But like you're pointing to, there's another style of transformation, which is a kind of sudden awakening style. And here we can go from the depth of parts where we're ego identified in some way. And through practicing that style of transformation, actually flash directly into non-dual presence. Sometimes I, I like to call it the express train because it makes no local stops, right? It just goes straight from parts directly into non-dual presence. And you can see that in some ways, these two approaches are very complementary in the sense that, you know, when we're working in a gradual unfoldment style, it's super good for individuation work because we're leaning into our emotions. What are we feeling? What are we sensing in the body? You know, we're working through a lot of boundary issues, you know, autonomy, contact. How do we create healthy boundaries in, in our relationships? We're doing all that work, which is very emotionally centered work. But it's also work in which we're working to get resourced in the midst of our relationships. And that's what allows us to be able to create those healthy boundaries, you know, to open to contact because we feel resourced enough to allow it, or we feel resourced enough to establish, to reassert a boundary uh, in a way that has enough energy behind it that it actually functions as a boundary, right? All that's really, really important individuation work that all of that is mostly in the three shallower depths. And in that gradual enfoldment style, you can get into non-dual presence. But in my experience, it tends to take a long time to actually do that. And if you contrast that with the sudden awakening uh, style of transformation, you go directly into non-dual presence in a flash of insight, a flash of self-recognition, a recognition of your true nature. And so where one of these styles of transformation has a strength, it, the other has a weakness. So they're very complementary. And so when you then take those two styles, you can actually sort of integrate them together, which gives you a third style of transformation. And then there's a fourth style even beyond that that's been articulated in our work. So this is the other thing that I started to notice when I started to work with this depth ontology is that Many people, many coaching approaches or psychotherapeutic approaches or spiritual approaches will offer some kind of a transformative praxis as, and they will treat it as the mode of, tra of transformation. But having studied across many traditions and many modalities, I've noticed that not only did the different modalities work at different depths, but they actually, to the extent that they understand depth at all, they work with depth in different ways. And so there's actually a need to articulate different styles of transformation. And I sometimes liken these different styles of transformation like gears in a manual transmission car. You know, like you start out in first gear, you know, gradual unfoldment, and you get up to speed in your car, but you know you have to switch into second gear at some point, or you're gonna burn the engine out, or something, something's not gonna work, you're gonna lose power. So this is really how I, how I see these different styles of transformation functioning, is that we tend to start out in a gradual unfoldment style. We're working with our individuation issues. But then at a certain point, working in that way seems to plateau. And that's really the, a signal to shift gears into a different style of transformation. Now, that doesn't mean that you are leaving behind gradual unfoldment forevermore. Just like in a manual transmission car, the next time you come to a stop sign, you've got to be back in first gear, right? 
So the idea here is that we actually shift between these different styles of transformation um, as a way to, to sort of stay in the power pocket of, of transformation and continue to be able to work with what's here. Because when we plateau, it really is a call for us to approach the whole endeavor in another, from another approach, from another angle. And then that's, that tends to sort of reinvigorate um, our work. So even in that sense, it's not linear. So it's not linear exactly in terms of the four depths, and it's not exactly linear in terms of the four styles of transformation, that we're always shifting back and forth between these. It's so beautifully articulated. And what was coming up for me as you were sharing was how, like in my journey, kind of exploring these different modalities of transformation, I found, say, let's say, like going deep down the breathwork path, which you know, was mostly process, maybe some presence pieces, but then I couldn't really match that with what I was experiencing at, say, Maple with, with Soyu, which was, I think, much more like geared towards the sudden awakening. And these felt like two completely distinct endeavors to my mind, almost like the waking up versus the cleaning up. And what I love about your your frame is that it it really does, it integrates everything and it kind of creates uh, an expanded territory or an expanded map of like, oh, I see, I can see where I am and I can see, you know, what might serve me the best at, at each of these points. And I think that's at least one of the many things I think is so powerful about what you've created. Um, one question I, I was curious about was I researched the etymology of the word Aletheia and apparently it comes from the Greek meaning unforgetting, which, which I really love. And so I was wondering like, how does unforgetting your, or unforgetting your heart, unleathing, I think was the translation. How does your work relate to that? I first came across this word in the work of Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger was a continental philosopher in the mid-last century. I think he died maybe in 68 or 69. And his work has been really formative for Aletheia and for my work in general as a coach. He was trying to articulate, among many things that he did, one of the things he was trying to do was to articulate truth. And in a way that was different than the correspondence theory of truth. And so the correspondence theory of truth is that something is true to the extent to which it corresponds to a separate reality. You know, so if I say, you know, the sky is blue, well, you go look at the sky and you go, it's, well, Steve is right, the sky is blue. So that correspondence theory of truth, which of course is really central in the scientific worldview, is an important understanding of truth. But Heidegger wanted to talk about truth as a kind of unconcealing that is happening. So, you know, there is truth to, you know, just noticing what you sense, what you feel. So if I say, you know, right now I'm feeling a sense of solidity in my belly, well, that doesn't, you know, that's not corresponding to anything. I'm actually expressing something. So there's a truth in the kind of, the kind of disclosure of being. I'm expressing, I'm disclosing my being. And so in some way, what we're working to do in Aletheia is Aletheia. That unfolding is an expression of Aletheia. So the name just seemed to fit, you know, as just a nice way of tying both into the tradition of the use of that word and also as a descriptor for what we're up to. Yeah, yeah, it, it's such a great name. And you've mentioned the term self-unfoldment a couple of times now. Could you share your working definition for that and how it is distinct from self-improvement or self-development? And, you know, I imagine a lot of listeners 
are probably familiar with like become your best self, you know, all, all these things. How is that distinct from the, the journey of self unfoldment? Yeah. And I, and I do define unfoldment relative to improvement. So let me start with improvement. So the improvement or the self-improvement paradigm, as I sometimes call it, is really the prevailing paradigm in our world. And as you're saying, like you see it all over the internet, all over YouTube, all over, you know, the books that hit the, the bestseller list there, you know, many of them are about self-improvement, improving your relationships, improving literally everything, your health, your body you know, your career, et cetera. And in fact, even the industry that I'm part of, the coaching industry is self-improvement is just, it's sort of bread and butter, right? That's, that's what it is. And I did self-improvement style coaching for a long time, decades, in fact. I even taught it for a, for a while. And what I noticed in my own experience was that I never was very satisfied with the results. And what I started to understand was that the central question in the self-improvement paradigm is what is missing? And, you know, we feel dissatisfied with life. We feel a sense of self-deficiency. What is missing? It's a natural question. You know, the, the good intention here is, well, if we can figure out what's missing and then we can figure out where to get it or how to build it or how to develop it, then it won't be missing anymore and we'll be liberated from the sense of deficiency. All makes rational sense. But my question is, does it work? And my conclusion is that no, it doesn't work. So if you launch a self-improvement project to address some self-deficiency, you know, sometimes those projects just flat out fail. And that usually leaves us feeling like, well, I guess I don't have what it takes. Right? Like, a, like look at, you know, how many New Year's resolutions people give up on. Right? And they make the resolution with a good intention. It doesn't work out. They give it up within a month or two. And usually where it lands them is in some feeling like, like I don't have what it takes, right? They feel deficient by actually making, by instigating that self-improvement project. But let's take the case of mixed results. Well, that's kind of no better. You know, it's like, yes, we got some improvements here, but it didn't really live up to our expectations. Once again, maybe I don't have what it takes or, or maybe, maybe my way of improving, that's what needs improving, right? Like I need to do the improvement project in a better way. Don't have the right strategy, don't have the right tactics, haven't read the right exactly. books. Exactly. Yeah. So, may, so yeah, this, this approach didn't really work. Mixed results. Let's go look for another one, right? And so how many of us are looking for a, for a better way to do self-improvement, right? So you get caught into that. But even in the case where your self-improvement project succeeds, in my experience with that, mostly we succeed to the extent that we're able to almost like put blinders on and take a tunnel vision, very, very focused, you know, approach, often with tremendous willpower, and we can hit the number, so to speak, right? We can get the improvement. And of course, that's great, but it tends to cast a really big shadow on the rest of our lives. And we say, well, I improved here, but look at all the other places I'm deficient. And so in my experience with the self-improvement paradigm, no matter what the outcome is, what tends to happen is there's a reinforcement of the sense of self-deficiency. And so that gets us into what I call the self-improvement trap, which is where the more self-improvement you do, the more it seems you need self-improvement. And so we just keep going at it again and again and again and again. 
and the intention is always good. You know, it's like, really, it's a good intention. But I think that we often don't really pause to consider the outcome because, frankly, we don't know there's an alternative. We just think that, well, this is the way it works. And if it's not working out, then my way of improving needs improvement. And we just we just double down on it because we don't know that there there's an alternative. And so the unfoldment paradigm is that alternative. And so the way that we shift into the unfoldment paradigm, there's a there's a bunch of ways that we can talk about, but one of them is to change that central question. And we change the question from what is missing to what if nothing is missing? What if you're already a whole human being? Now, that's a provocative proposition. And it's intended to be provocative because, of course, we still have the feeling of self-deficiency. And so in the unfoldment paradigm, when you have the feeling of self-deficiency, the question is, what does that feel like? How do you actually experience it? Do you feel it in your body? Do you feel it emotionally? Like, what is the actual contact you have with that something that you believe is missing? And so what happens is, you know, we'll start to say, well, it feels like something missing right here in the center of my chest, or it feels like whatever. And the conversation shifts from what's not here to what is here. And we begin to explore what is palpably present. We explore that in an unfolding way, in a way that, that unfolds a greater depth of contact. And it's as we deepen into self-contact that we recognize and that we unconceal our innate wholeness, our innate wholeness as presence, which is quality rich. So when we work in this unfolding way with what's here, we unfold into a state in which we recognize our courage, we recognize our perseverance, we recognize our strength, we recognize our love, we recognize compassion, and all of these different human virtues, which are available to us to be embodied when we actually have deep self-contact. So essentially, what this is basically saying is that a lot of us, when we feel this sort of persistent background of self-deficiency, is that we actually don't have very deep self-contact. That in a way, we're kind of skipping through the world without ever really deepening into contact with ourselves. And so human contact, both contact with ourselves and contact with each other, is something that we all deeply need. And the manner of contemporary life, you know, is not really satisfying that. And the result is that we feel this background of persistent self-deficiency. So the unfolding approach is really that alternative. And it is we we still need the self-improvement paradigm, but we just need to put the self-improvement paradigm sort of back into its corner. You know, it's really, really good for improving skillfulness. Like if you lack skill, skill can be actually truly lacking, right? Like there's a lot of skills I don't have that would be nice to have. Lots of things that when I try to do them, I, I feel awkward. I'm not really good at it, right? And so for me to launch a self-improvement project there where I reach out for coaching or take a class or read a book or practice, that makes total sense, right? But that sense of lacking a skill is really not 
a self-deficiency. It's not a lack in myself. Myself is, is innately whole. It's simply, it's simply a behavior I can't do well, right? That, has, that is not a verdict on my value as a human being. Except oftentimes we conflate those two, those things. We think that because I can't do this skill well, that now I'm not as valuable as a human being. So really when it comes to relating to yourself as a human being, it's far more effective to actually start with a sense of innate wholeness and then engage in an unfolding way as an unfolding expression of that wholeness. And so that's really what the unfolding paradigm is about. It's about it's about unfolding the wholeness that you are, and that is an inexhaustible journey. You can continue to unfold your wholeness in myriad forms, in different relationships, and at every step of the road, you're not you're not deficient. Even if you feel something is absent for a moment, you just simply turn to that and you say, well, what is that? How is that showing up? You explore that, that sense of absence. And in this unfolding style of transformation, it transmutes into a quality of presence, much like in Taoism, the yin and the yang. You go into yin fully, yang is born. You go into yang fully and yin is born. So presence and absence, and this is the dynamic that happens at the depth of presence and absence when we have that deep contact is that when we drop into that, it doesn't matter if we drop into absence or presence, eventually the other one will be born from it. When that starts to happen, we start to realize that absence isn't bad and presence isn't good, that in fact, we're both in this dynamic of life, this kind of breath that's, uh, that, you know, it's like we need the inhalation and we need the exhalation. And it, you know, you can't say, well, you know, I'm squarely in the inhaler camp. Those exhalers are crazy, right? That makes no sense whatsoever. And so you also can't say, well, I want presence and not absence, right? That doesn't work. We need this, this dynamism of, of life. So we start to really, with deep contact, really understand what it is to be human in a different way. And that's what the unfoldment paradigm really, really opens up. Yeah, I, I love what you've just shared so much. And it's such a radical proposition. I almost wish that like, I could take a clip of this and post it on Twitter. And it, you know, just is seen by 10s of millions of people because like, I, I see that, you know, the, the way in which people do get caught in these self improvement traps. And I've been guilty of this myself for sure, where it's like, without consciously doing it there's a reinforcement of that deficiency and like you say even if like you get the six-pack abs even if you get the the seven-figure payout whatever it is the the underlying like ungenerous story is still kind of running the show in in some ways and so there will always be it's like my experience like the mind will always find another way like you said another way that there is a deficiency there and it is it's such a radical idea of like, like, what if there is nothing to improve? What if there is nothing to fix? And because you mentioned New Year's resolutions, <laughs> like a funny thought popped into my mind of like, so, so what would a New Year's resolution look like from the approach of a self-unfoldment paradigm? Like this will be released probably sometime in December. People are like, okay, I, you know, I have these things that I want to like improve in my life. How could I apply Steve's approach of self-unfoldment to this so that I'm not 
unconsciously reinforcing this deficiency narrative? Yeah, I mean, in, in our approach, when I start working with a coaching client, typically what we will do is we will ask, you know, what kind of action are you trying to take in the world? You could say goal, that language could work. I'm very, very sort of, I, I hold this kind of orientation very loosely. I think goals can sometimes be used, unfortunately, as yardsticks to just reinforce the sense of deficiency, to, you know, to reinforce the sense of not having it. But of course, we all want to start to act in new ways in life, maybe to, you know, uh, establish a new habit or something like that. And so it's fine to talk in, in those terms. I sometimes use the language of vector. It's like, what's the direction that you're hoping to go in in life? And sometimes, you know, we're at a fork in the road where we need to, to redirect ourselves in another way. So it's good to talk about that. It's good to explore that. It's good to articulate your intention to do so. Then the second step is to really start to notice how it turns out. As you have that intention, as you start to, to go in that direction, what are the impediments that get triggered? What are the impediments that, that show up? And impediments in the language that we use are typically, well, there's two kinds of impediments. There, there are external impediments, literally like roadblocks that you experience in life. But the ones that are most important to work with are the inner impediments. And those inner impediments always tend to show up as parts. So you'll have a part that will get triggered that says, I don't know about going in this new direction. Sounds risky to me. And it will get triggered. And every part has a good intention. Um, this is a notion that we get um, from internal family systems uh, therapy that we draw into our work in Aletheia. Every part has a good intention, but it also has an unintended negative side effect. And so that part is trying to protect you from making a mistake, but it's also sabotaging your intention to make a redirection in life. So you have this vector, you start to understand what these inner impediments are. And then instead of working with those inner impediments in a self-improving way, you work with those inner impediments in an unfolding way. So you work with parts in an unfolding way, which would take me a while to describe, but essentially that's, that's the shift in strategy. And the idea behind this actually goes back to, um, back to something from Kurt Lewin, who was uh, one of the you know, sort of founding fathers of the field of organizational development. And Lewin recognized that systems tend, you know, tend to be goal-seeking, they're goal-oriented. And I think you can understand an individual as a system as well. That is, we point ourselves towards the realization of some possibility, some future possibility. And what he noticed is that, broadly speaking, there's sort of two strategies that you can employ. One is to increase the, fourth, the sort of driving forces toward the realization of that possibility. You know, work harder, more willpower more accountability, partners, something like that, that you try to increase the driving forces. But what he noticed is that when you try to increase the driving forces, internally, you also activate all the resistance to that. And so you wind up in some kind of, you know, some kind of state where it's not really working. The harder you try, the more resistance there is. And so he said, well, the opposite approach, the other approach, is to actually work 
to reduce the internal resistance, to reduce what he called the restraining forces, the forces kind of holding you back, or what I'm calling inner impediments. And so when you, when you reduce inner impediments, the natural driving proclivities of the system or the person uh, can then just sort of take over, and you don't have to try to do anything to increase or amplify them, because that they're, they're just naturally there, naturally wanting to realize that future possibility. So that's essentially the way we work in an unfolding style, is we work to reduce those inner impediments or those restraining forces, but we do so in an unfolding manner. And I can say a little bit more about that, because there's a, there's a really sort of paradoxical shift that we have to go through. But I'll, I'll pause. I'm curious what you make of that. Yeah, well, um, what comes to mind is uh, there's a line that my old meditation teacher, Michael King, used to share where, where he was like, if you apply effort internally, it allows the external world to be effortless. And the other thing that, that came to mind was, I'd love to see a conversation between you and Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, where you know he has this entire book, this entire philosophy around kind of beating beating the capital R resistance in life, which is kind of exactly as you just described. And it would be interesting to kind of see, you know, from a purely kind of outcome focused perspective, like, you know, which of these strategies actually yields the most effective results. Let's say there's an author who has a, a book inside them they want to create. And on the one hand, there's someone who's like, you know, they have five accountability partners. They are waking up at 9 a.m. drinking three double espressos. And they're just like, pushing themselves through and almost forcing it versus someone who maybe goes down the self-unfoldment route and inquires into the nature of whatever resistance they might feel to writing that day. So I think it's, it's a really interesting juxtaposition and I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, in my experience, when I encountered Lewin's work in this distinction of you know driving forces and restraining forces, it just intuitively made sense to me that if we if we reduce the inner resistance, the inner drag that we have on our efforts in the world, that you know the natural proclivities that we have for for doing work, for you know realizing possibilities, will just take over, and that's basically what we see. And so, the real key is not working on those inner impediments in a self-improving way, because in a, the self-improving way is more often the way of trying to increase the driving forces. And so this is one of the things that, that generates the kind of poor results of the self-improvement uh, paradigm, is that it often activates those inner resistances, but doesn't have a skillful way of working with them, doesn't have a skillful way of reducing or eliminating them. And instead, it, all it has is just working harder. All it has is just, you know, continue to increase the driving forces until you theoretically overwhelm the, the, the restraining forces, which of course leads to burnout. It leads to exhaustion. It leads to lots of negative side effects, poor relationships. You know, you wind up pissing people off if you're working with them in projects. If you're a manager or a leader and you take this kind of approach, you're going to have high employee turnover. So there are all kinds of you know negative side effects that just spin out from that approach. And so the unfolding approach is really centered on contact, on fulfilling the need for contact. And the side effects of that generally are relaxation, openness, depth, deepening relationships, 
easier capacity to leverage support. I mean, it goes on and on. So it really is a, a, a dramatic shift. And the reason why I think people don't don't operate more in the unfolding paradigm is literally it's in the blind spot that we have in our culture. Our culture only knows about the self-improvement paradigm and and only approaches it that way. It's not even considered a paradigm in our in our culture. It's just considered the way. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I think there's there is such a risk, which I've also fallen into or the trap I've fallen into myself is let's say I, I make contact with a part of myself that is angry. Maybe it's, you know, wanting to set a boundary of some sorts. And then there's a way in which I can relate to that where I'm like, okay, if I feel this thing, it will go away and I'll feel better, which generally doesn't create <laughs> the results that I'm looking for because it's another way of, of just resisting it as opposed to welcoming it and viewing, viewing myself as an inherent whole in that, in that process. And I think that's something that has taken me a good while to kind of learn and, and relearn, you know, over and over again. Well, we've all fallen into this, you know, I mean, I, I can articulate this really, really clearly because I've made all these errors myself, you know, and, and repeatedly so over and over again. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's why I've arrived here. And even though today I still understand all this, I still find myself falling back into uh, the self-improvement paradigm. You know, my only saving grace is I think I can catch it a lot sooner and I can course correct. I can go, oh, there I go again. You know, I mean, it's. In this culture, it is so reinforced that it's hard not to. And so this is one of the reasons why I, I like to say in this work that we really need each other. It's like we need communities of practice to be able to remind ourselves of an alternative way of engaging life. Because all of us, no matter who we are, we're gonna we're gonna fall back into that. But the example you just gave, I wanna bring another element into the conversation, which is, you know, when we relate to a part, like a part that's angry. We really want to relate to it in a way in which we let it be and let it unfold. And this is the paradox I was really referring to earlier. It's so tempting when we relate to a part to have a change agenda toward that part. Like if I do X, Y, and Z, then I know the part will change in a way that I want it to change. And although that can be well-intended, as you reported, it really doesn't work out because what enables a part to actually unfold spontaneously is that it feels seen and emotionally understood and loved and valued exactly the way it is. And the only way that that happens is when we approach it with a genuine interest to understand it empathetically and with zero agenda to change it. Like if you think about human relationships, if you are having a tough time, you're feeling a lot of strong emotions and a friend wants to, you know, you reach out for support and your friend says, okay, I get you're really grieving and sad, but let's go do something fun today. Sort of you don't feel seen by that person. And you're kind of like, that's not what I need for you right now. I was just about to share that like, yes, it applies to an internal part, but also in, you know, in intimate relationship. Like that's also something that I've learned of like, if you're with your partner and she's going through a tough time, then there is that there's, there's like a loving part that like wants her to feel better, but actually it's, it's just a far less effective strategy than showing up with pure kind of curiosity, loving presence. And just like, like, tell me about what's going on without any kind of like needing it to be different. And again, like that's something that I've had to learn, relearn uh, and still, fall, you know, fall into at times. 
Exactly. Exactly. So that's the paradox that, you know, when we when we relate to our parts from presence in a way that they feel seen, understood, loved, and valued exactly as they are, when that occurs, we know that's occurring because we find that the part uh, melts and or shines. And so, you know, you know, melting, it's like something just relaxes. We've all had this experience of like we've shared something that, that's really tender with a, with a friend of ours. And our friend says something like, I really feel you. I really get it. Like, you know, and then something in us just lets go. And it's in that letting go that we actually drop into a deeper depth of contact, that we drop from the depth of parts into the depth of process where there is literally more fluidity to our experience. We drop more into our body. That's unfoldment right there. Sometimes parts shine, and shining is like, you know, if you've ever been around a kid who has maybe, you know, made you something, you know, a drawing or or some sort of something, found something on the playground, and they come to you and they want to give it to you as a gift. And if you really genuinely receive the gift that's given, they shine. It's like, it's like, wow, that's an amazing drawing. And you can just see them light up from the inside. They just beam. And so when our parts feel seen and understood and loved and valued exactly as they are, they, they melt and they shine. And that's what drops us into a deeper contact with ourselves. And so that shift of how we relate to those parts from an, an improving way where we're really trying to get the part to maybe like stop what it's doing because the negative side effects it's producing are undermining us, to just meeting the part exactly the way it is and allowing the power of contact to do all the heavy lifting. Just that part feeling genuine, genuinely empathetically met and contacted. That's what does it. Yeah, which is in itself, I think, a pretty radical act or suggestion for a lot of people because I think it, in my experience, it requires a deep amount of trust and, and for people who, who are so used to kind of having to, you know, do everything themselves and have this kind of control paradigm, that it's like, it's almost nonsensical until you experience it, I think. Yeah. I was once giving a presentation of this approach in a corporate world to a company which I will not name, but, you know, and I was talking about this shift from having an improvement agenda into letting be, letting unfold as a way of working with yourself. And uh, one of the participants uh, raised his hand and said, you know, if I try that line around here, all I'm going to hear is you're not looking hard enough. There's something missing and you need to go figure it out. So it's, it, you're right, it's very sort of counterintuitive. Part of the thing is that there are really sort of two different sources of change. Our culture tends to only know about one and forgets the other. You know, we only seem to think that change happens because we make it happen. And I can remember sitting in uh, an executive meeting with a client of mine and somebody in the meeting said, well, we all know nothing's going to change if we don't do anything. Now, on the face of that, that sounds totally right, right? We all know nothing's going to change if we don't do it. We don't do anything. And I had enough trust with this executive team. I'd worked with them for several years. And I said, I want to challenge that. 
And I said, and I want to demonstrate, I want to do it right now. And I said, nobody change anything for the next minute. And I got my cell phone out and I timed a minute. And at the end of the minute, I said, how many of you were successful? And not, not a single one raised their hand. And, they, and I said, well, what happened? And they said, things were changing constantly. And I said, yeah, right. That's the point, is that there's a whole other source of change that we fail to see. And it's the change that's an emergent property of complex systems. And the vast majority of transformation any of us has ever experienced in life, whether we know it or not, has been as a result of em emergent unfoldment, not as a result of self-improvement projects. If you think of all the, the vast profound change that we've all experienced going through childhood, how much your body changes, how much your mind changes, how much your emotional life changes, none of that happened because you had an a self-improvement project. That unfolded. And then we get into adulthood and we somehow turn away from unfoldment, which has done so much for us, and then think that we can take on the job and do it better. You know, like we have to make it so, we have to make it happen. And so one of the curious things that happens when we see this a lot in our trainings is that coaches that are experienced in other coaching modalities will come in and after a few months of working in this way, they'll say, this is cheating. They're like, <laughs> I feel like I'm not doing anything. I feel like I'm, I'm not working hard enough as a coach. And, you know, in fact, it's true. You're actually not working as hard because what you're doing is you're learning how to leverage the emergent unfolding that is constantly always, in a sense, here and happening. You're learning how to leverage that other source of change and transformation instead of constantly trying to do it. Sure. It feels to me like it's like creating the conditions for that unfoldment to arise or spontaneously emerge, which, which is, I think, there That's is exactly absolutely it. an art and skill in that, but it's very different to, I think there's a good parallel to sleep. It's like, we don't do sleep, but we like, we create the conditions for sleepiness and then sleep just like emerges. <laughs> that's a great analogy. Yeah. I think that's spot on that it's really about creating the conditions in which which is mostly about removing the conditions that thwart natural unfoldment, right? That's mostly what it's about. It's about learning to stop doing certain things and allow the natural emergent unfoldment to have its way. Right. And as you were sharing, the example of, of like falling in love came to mind of like, it's, you know, it's really not something that you do. It just happens. And the the work, if there is any work, is, is, as Rumi says, like removing the barriers to love that arise. And I think that can be extrapolated to, to so many other areas of life. This is an in interesting segue to one other distinction that I wanted to uh, just have you articulate, because I think it's so beautiful. And it's the difference between the poetic attunement and the technological attunement, which might sound like a, you know, a, a lot of words for people, but I think there's something really important to point to here. So could you just briefly share what, what you mean by that distinction. Yeah, this, this is the most important distinction in the entire curriculum, the entire method. It's literally lesson one, session one, level one. We start here. It also, poetically, is the final lesson in our most advanced curriculum. 
So we come full circle in this, of course, having traversed a, a vast territory in between and now being able to see it in a new light. Once again, this comes originally from the work of Martin Heidegger. And, you know, Heidegger was writing about um, what he called a history of being. And on the face of it, that sounds a little odd, you know, because being is just being, isn't it? And what he was noticing was that actually in, in the course of history that human beings have actually been human being in different ways. And that there's a certain way that we can attune. Each one has a certain way of attuning to ourselves and the world that discloses what it is to be human in a different way. Now, all of us have lived in uh, contemporary times where there's only been, for the most part, one dominant attunement. And this is the technological attunement. And Heidegger was seeing the technological attunement. He was writing from his his hut in rural Germany. He was seeing the ways that farm equipment was coming in and taking over some of the traditional ways of doing farming. And he had the foresight to recognize that this was actually hiding, in some sense, what it truly is to be human. So in Heidegger's way of understanding the phenomenology of technology, he said that what technology is, is it's a capacity standing in reserve. So if you think like I have a car standing in reserve as a capacity in my driveway right now, you know, even even if I look at my desk, you know, I have my wallet, I have a glass of water here, you know, um, there's a mechanical pencil here. Like we think of technology as high technology, but this is technology too, right? It's a capacity standing in reserve. I don't need it right now. It's just sitting there. Okay, that's no problem, but what Heidegger noticed was that we started to view each other and ourselves in these terms. And so, you know, the cashier at the grocery store stops being a human being to us, and they start to be a capacity standing in reserve. They're just waiting until we arrive with our cart, with our basket of groceries, and they scan our groceries and they make some sort of financial transaction. Then, you know, maybe we say hi or some exchange some pleasantries, but we walk out of the store and they have functioned in our life in a way. And before we start to feel too bad about how we're dehumanizing them, we are also in some sense a technology for them to earn a living. And so we're technologizing each other. And you know, you can see that even our education system from the industrial revolution has been designed to help us function in the world as technology. Can we actually learn a particular skill and fulfill a function so that we too can be a capacity standing reserve waiting waiting for people to, to employ us. And this is really so thoroughly woven through our culture right now that it's even, it, it just seems odd to point it out even. It just seems such a natural way to view ourselves. But this is really heavily implicated in this feeling of self-deficiency that we have because we're lacking contact with our humanity in some sense. And the technological attunement fuels the self-improvement paradigm. So one of the ways that we enact the shift from the self-improvement paradigm into the unfoldment paradigm is to shift attunement, meaning that we really want to attune to everything, ourselves, each other, the world, in a way that discloses it in a different manner. And 
Heidegger um, brilliantly had a proposal for that. He said that the antidote in some sense to the technological attunement was to attune to the world in a poetic way, where we see what it is to be human in, in poetic terms. We see what it is to be a world in poetic terms. We see nature in poetic terms. Instead of nature as a resource to be consumed or a landscape to be reformed and reshaped in our own design, that we actually see the innate truth, beauty, and goodness that's there. So the way that we practice this in Aletheia is we engage a love of truth, beauty, and goodness for its own sake. And we need to do it for its own sake, because if we do this for the sake of anything else, we will backslide into, into doing this as a technology. So if you think of what do we do for its own sake, well, that's a good definition of play. Like play is something we do for its own sake. If you turn play into doing something for the sake of producing something, then that's work, right? That's not play anymore. So this way of shifting into the poetic attunement is simultaneously a form of play. It's a, it's a playful thing. We're actually playing in a way that opens us to each other, that opens us to the poetry, the truth, beauty, and goodness of what it is to be human. And it's really a very pragmatic orientation in our coaching conversations, because the conversation essentially is always focused on, to say it simply, what's true. So when we check in with a client, we're wanting to know what's true. How are you feeling? What are you sensing in your body? What's here right now? What's happening? And what's happening in you? What's happening between us? What's happening in your life? We keep focusing on what's true. Some truths are very easy to be with and to feel. Some truths are not. Nevertheless, we keep focusing on that. And what we find is that the truth unfolds. There's a, we start to create some of those conditions for spontaneous unfoldment. And as it unfolds, there's a revelation of beauty. There's a revelation of fundamental goodness, basic goodness. And so as we have coaching conversations in this unfolding paradigm attuned poetically, clients discover their own fundamental truths, their own beauty, their own essential basic goodness. And these are all facets of themselves as innate wholeness. So when we land into our innate wholeness, we feel it as a truth. We feel that there's a beauty there. We feel there's, a, there's an essential goodness there. And that's the antidote to this persistence of self-deficiency in life. So, you know, really shifting into a poetic attunement does so much. It's, it's really incredible. And it's one of the things that allows us to enact this shift from improvement into unfoldment. Yeah. Yeah. Th this really strikes a chord with me as well. I I've gone through phases of my life. This is more kind of in my twenties where I was, was very technologically attuned in the sense of, you know, I had like full calendars. I was like doing this for this, you know, like measuring a lot of different metrics, things like that. And it feels to me that, um, music, writing poetry, these things, it, it, it was almost like, like a dry quality. Like I was like parched 
without even really knowing it. And something about whether it was playing music or like witnessing a sunrise or like allowing myself to be affected by beauty, this kind of uh, the poetic imagination, as David White describes it, like it brought a quality of aliveness to my existence that I didn't even realize I was lacking. And, and my sense is that many people who are, you know, even very successful in let's say the startup fields and they they have you know they've nailed this like technological they've they've kind of got these systems and processes but there's still a part of themselves that feels like it's missing something and and my experience is that it, it's like missing this core quality of inherent aliveness which can come through any of these methods i guess it depends on what what resonates but it's such a it's such a key thing and i think it's also very hard to describe to someone that is deeply entrenched in the technological view because it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. It's like, it's very hard to describe. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that one of the things that's really sad is that in the technological attunement, we live in a disenchanted world and the world feels flat. And we literally have a kind of flat ontology that it's a world that lacks depth. And there's something that is, depth is like, it's like a nutrient for humanity. Humans have depth. We are depth. And when we start to wake up to our own depth, um, and we do so through through attuning poetically and, and several other steps in this method that create these conditions, what starts to happen is exactly what you're describing, this kind of reanimation, this enlivening, this, this re-enchantment of life. And we discover you know, life is filled with with far more of everything. You know, of course, pleasure and bliss and delight and curiosity and wonder and awe, but also states of suffering. And yet there's poetry in that, right? There's poetry in in realizing that to live a full human life literally means that, to live a full human life. And so it's not necessarily like now we're on the easy path. It's more like now we're on now we're on a genuinely fulfilling path, a, a life well lived, a life that is rich and multifaceted. And we do it and we live it for its own sake. It's its own reward in some sense. And in the coaching field, we have people who come to us as coaches all the time feeling a sense of lack of passion, lack of engagement, lack of fulfillment. You know, they're burnt out. They're in this state where they're realizing, you know, I'm on a track that I don't want to be on. And oftentimes they are approaching and responding to that out inside of the self-improvement paradigm, trying to improve their way out. And it's like, you know, it's like fighting yourself out of a trap. I don't know. Sometimes I use this. It's a silly analogy, but I think it's workable. Do you know those finger handcuffs, those Chinese finger handcuffs, where mm, the harder yeah, you yeah. try to pull out of them, <laughs> made of paper, the more yeah, trapped yeah. you are. Yeah, made of paper. Those are the ones. The harder you try to pull out of this, the more trapped you are. Right, and a lot of times that's the state that clients are in. And so, much like those Chinese handcuffs, right, those finger handcuffs. What we do is we actually move into it. We move into the difficulty. We move into the flatness of life and the disenchantment of life and the absences. And we actually start to palpate them 
instead of as a nothingness or as a something missing, as a presence of an absence, as a presence of something here. And we start to turn the corner and poetically open back up. Beautiful. Yeah, almost like a like a fertile void. Exactly. Yeah, there was a thought that I just had that I've been thinking and talking a lot about psychedelics recently. And my sense is that the psychedelic container, if it's kind of well held, is almost a a very efficient path into deep poetic attunement. And people often come out of it being like, that was the most meaningful, real experience that I've had in God knows how long. And and I think that part of the the gift or the promise of psychedelics becoming more widely used is it is really giving people this like felt sense experience of that deep poetic attunement. And then the, the, the challenge or the interesting question becomes how can that be, then be carried into day-to-day life without the need for and antigens and things like that. This feels like an interesting segue into, I'd love to talk about, about the nervous system and specifically how you see the Aletheia methodology working with nervous system regulation and capacity building. Because it strikes me that there's a lot of overlap here, but I also, I would love to hear from your perspective, how does increasing nervous system regulation maybe create the conditions for greater presence and depth and therefore unfolding. Yeah. And just um, before we switch into that, I completely agree with your comment about psychedelics here. And, you know, you know, the strongest advice that I ever give to people who are entering into that kind of uh, that kind of experience is, you know, adopt a poetic attunement and let be let unfold, which are literally the, you know, two of the core principles of our work in 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 Aletheia unfolding. And that will do you really well in those journeys. The worst thing that you can do is to adopt a technological attunement and try to get something out of it. Because invariably, it's going to go in a way... It's going to... Precisely, right, right. If you try to control it or you're in the middle of it, it's not turning out, you know, all kinds of stuff is getting surfaced and you're like, that's not what I want to work with. And, you know, you try to avoid that and switch gears. And, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of a recipe for a pretty rough ride. So, yeah. Yeah, so in terms of nervous system, I mean, you know, our practice is very polyvagally informed. I think that you're spot on that they're one of the conditions for spontaneous unfoldment is having some sense of regulation, uh, some nervous system regulation. You know, you know, we find clients in states of sort of like uh, chronic free states, you know, and so but really, we have to help clients learn to, you know, shift from sort of more dorsal vagal states, you know, back through sympathetic states and into uh, some kind of ventral vagal, you know, socially, socially engaged, regulated state where it's easier to access presence, it's easier to open, it's easier to be with what's arising in an unfolding way. And so a lot of, you know, we don't really teach our methodology in terms of here's what you're doing with the nervous system, but each of the gestures that we do in the method definitely has effects on the nervous system that help help shift it into a state that in, in which unfoldment is more spontaneous. And so, yeah, there's definitely a, a big element there. The other thing is that we really understand and leverage neuroplasticity in our coaching approach. And uh, so we've integrated the work that's been done on memory reconsolidation, 
you know, what really allows us to have a sustainable transformation. It's one thing to have a new experience, but it's another thing to actually have a sustained transformation in our sense of self. And so we have built into our method at each depth of work, parts work, process work, presence work, and non-dual work, ways of um, opening the memory reconsolidation window or what I've started to call the self-reconsolidation window when you're working at certain depths. And to actually, when that window closes after about five hours, to recrystallize and consolidate in a way that that neurologically sustains a transformation that unfolded. And so we're working a lot with that. Yeah, beautiful. So a couple of things that come to mind. The, the first is on the, the piece around returning to ventral vagal, which for listeners who might not be familiar is the, basically the state of, I feel safe, I feel uh, it's where play happens, it's where social connection occurs. My, my sense is that that is actually an incredibly broad, expansive spectrum, which is very kind of tightly correlated with what we were just discussing with the poetic attunement. And there's something about like the deeper you can go into this ventral, it's almost like you are, you are trusting yourself and trusting life to an even greater capacity. And that that is the space where the most profound depth and unfoldment is possible. So, so it's almost like ventral is maybe just like the doorway in potentially, and that that can then again, create the conditions for a kind of deep unfoldment. Um, a, a question that I have is like, as far as I'm aware, when someone is, is in an emotional process, let's say they're kind of in that second level of depth, that that is often what opens up that neuroplasticity window and that there is a heightened degree of neuroplasticity kind of in the system. Does that continue as someone goes into a depth of presence and depths of non-duality or is it more just like the window opens and then there's a period of time and it, like, what, what have you seen with with your work? So the way that you uh, open the memory reconsolidation or the self-reconsolidation window is by having an experiential mismatch, which is that there are neurological structures in us which could which correlate to psychic structures. Parts, for example, would be a structure. You could also use the language of object relations. Those are structures. And what happens is that when those structures get triggered, they basically bring forth a kind of expectation, like they expect to experience something in a particular way. But when actual experience is a mismatch for that, is a violation of that, then what happens is that neurology, this is the way we learn, that neurology begins to shift into a more malleable state. Uh, it opens, it relaxes. And according to the research on this, uh, that state, that malleable state hangs open, hangs around for about five hours. And what you practice in that five-hour window makes more of a difference in terms of how things get reconsolidated at the end of it than, let's say, what you do in between times. So we have a big emphasis in our form of coaching of bringing practices into the coaching conversation itself such that they uh, generate this experiential mismatch. and. In our method, as we're practicing, we generate a whole host of experiential mismatches. We kind of layer them on top of each other, making them sort of bigger or wider or deeper uh, as we go through the coaching conversation so that most of the coaching conversation ideally is actually happening inside that five-hour window. 
And then we will give clients integrating experiments to do in the remainder of that window. And these tend to be micro practices that can be performed in, you know, anywhere from a couple seconds to maybe a couple minutes or five minutes or maybe at a stretch if the client has space in life, 10 or 15 minutes. And I sometimes metaphorically think of those integrating experiments as a little bit like like jamming your foot in the door in an open door so it can't be closed too quickly. <laughs> right. And a lot of times what those micro practices wind up being are little mini versions of some important experiential mismatch that occurred in the coaching conversation. And we kind of just invite the client to revisit that. You know, it could be like, you know, pause and really notice, just notice and remember how much you were feeling a sense of uh, courage in the coaching conversation and the way in which that's still here, for example. Now, it might not be here and we just say it's not, then you just accept that. But oftentimes there is a kind of remnant of that experiential mismatch. And we try to construct a way for the client to kind of revisit that. And it's a little bit of continuing to explore that fresh sense of self that actually winds up in a kind of reconsolidation of the sense of self that turns into the sustained transformation. So leveraging neuroplasticity is really central to, to this practice. And there are ways at each of the depths. So parts work has a certain way that it actually generates experiential mismatches. Process work has a certain way that it generates experiential mismatches, and they're different from the kind that parts work generates. Presence work as well, and non-dual work as well. And so as we shift down through the depths in these different styles of work, what we're really doing is we're mismatching different structures. And as you might imagine, you know, at parts work, it might be something like, you know, the client is feeling, feeling really intense fear. And we, through practicing parts work, are able to help the client to be with that part that's scared in a compassionate way. And the part feels seen. And the client realizes that they actually have the capacity to be with such fear. They don't have to avoid it. They don't have to turn away from it. So they're really feeling something really different about their own capacity, which was demonstrated to them. You didn't have to say as a, like a, some sort of cheerleader, like, I see you as being strong. And the client is thinking, well, that's not how I feel. It's actually something that's demonstrated in experience directly there. And so that's a, you know, a small example of a, an experiential mismatch. But if you contrast that with dropping into the depth of presence and absence, where we land into an embodied sense of wholeness, and one of the hallmarks of that experience is that we feel like nothing is missing. We really land into a feeling of innate wholeness, completeness, and it's often startling for clients when you actually start to explore that because it's such a dramatic contrast to the background feeling of persistent self-deficiency. So that is an, another example of an experiential mismatch. And so you can tell if you land into uh, the depth of presence and absence or even more profoundly the depth of non-dual presence, that's such a dramatic contrast or experiential mismatch with the usual sense of identity 
that that usual sense of identity becomes malleable in a way that when it recrystallizes at the end of the five hour window, it more recrystallizes with some elements of that fresh sense of self included rather than the previous sense of self. And so really the whole approach is, is just layering experiential mismatch on top of experiential mismatch, building them up by working uh, in the depths and across the depths throughout the coaching conversation. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear. And I, I'm kind of mapping this to my experience of um, a lot of my work has been through facilitated breath repatterning, which is a specific type of breath work. And the way that works is, you know, usually kind of towards the peak of the journey, let's say 30, 45 minutes in, there's that, I guess that, that mismatch will occur, even if it might just be embodied. And there's, you know, the sense of like some emotion is arising, then there's the feeling of and welcoming and integrating that emotion. And then usually the final kind of 15 to 20 minutes is is deep rest and relaxation. And that, to my understanding, is when a lot of the actual like rewiring is happening. It's kind of in that place where the body is not asleep, but there's, there's still awareness there, but it's almost like integrating whatever that experience was into the nervous system. And, and we actually will see changes in people's breathing patterns. So there seems to be a correlation between um, someone's breath pattern in a certain experience and to what degree are they welcoming different emotions and so their breath pattern will change kind of before and after and that's usually an indicator for us that uh, oh it's like whatever that piece was it's like landed in the system um, but it's it's so interesting to hear that there are these very different ways of reinforcing that expanded capacity i guess for um for, for these different states and and you, you mentioned non-dual work and um i'd love to briefly touch on uh because to me, like, it seems like a paradox in terms, right? Non-dual work, like that's kind of like breaks the brain. What is the work to be done when you're in a place of non-duality and you realize that there is no one doing the work? Yeah, so mostly non-dual work is, um, is, a, is a practice that allows us to land into the depth of non-duality, non non-dual presence, and really recognize the fundamental non-dual nature of of ourselves, uh, of our true nature. And the way I like to talk about it is that uh, most forms of non-dual work are actually designed for you to fail at. Um, and so, and it's the failure to actually do what's being sort of asked of the, the practice that actually allows you to, to drop into that depth. So unfoldment in general, can be understood as a kind of dance of work and grace. And it's that way from the very beginning, that there are, there are elements of practicing or working, and then there are elements that where you're just open to grace. You know, if we want to speak in more technological or uh, rather scientific terms about grace, this is that an emergent property of complex systems where it's a source of change that, that there is no actor acting it, there's no actor performing it, but yet change is emerging. And so in our work, we're really constantly dancing with uh, doing work and opening to grace. And most of the work that we do is in fact, to learn how to open to grace more fully so that we can really allow grace. So the deepest work is grace given, because as you point to, one of the ways into that work is through failing to find the self. 
failing to find the, the separate self as an inherently existing, self-existing, from its own side um, being. And so there really is no self that is ultimately, uh, no separate self that is ultimately uh, doing that. Really, it's, a, it's an awakening of non-dual presence to its own nature. Um, that is what unfolds there, and that is grace given. Beautiful, beautiful. And for for people listening, um, who I imagine uh, ha just have you know so much to chew on, what might be a specific experiential practice that people could try in their own lives, can explore for themselves to maybe get a taste of what we've been talking about? Like, like how can they go about creating the conditions for this depth of presence in their own lives? Yeah, my suggestion would be to start to play with the shift from improvement to unfoldment. And we, there's kind of sort of four principles here that, that anybody can start to play with. We've already talked about the first two. The first one really is the sh shifting from a technological way of viewing yourself as a capacity standing in reserve into viewing yourself and the world and others as walking poetry. And really tapping into your innate love of truth, beauty, and goodness for its own sake. And, you know, take that on, take on that poetic attunement, you know, as something that you might play with. Like, it might be easiest if you took a hike in nature or something and paused and just looked at the world in this poetic light. The second principle that we work with to enact this shift is through shifting from improvement agendas into letting be, letting unfold. And this is just that shifting from that, you know, only I can make it happen or nothing's going to happen unless I do it, to just noticing that there is action without an actor already occurring, that there is an emergence of change and difference and, and whatnot, and just beginning to reorient to include that, at least in your experience. Then the third principle is shifting from reacting to the emerging future out of the receding past, which is what we do when we're acting, let's say, in a self-protective manner. We've been hurt in the past. We've been wounded in the past. We we're trying to act in a way to prevent that from happening in the future again. In a way, it makes total sense. But once again, does it really work? Like how much of us, have, you know, how much, uh, how many of us do we have parts that are trying to prevent us from feeling something in particular that we don't want to feel and yet we still wind up feeling that way. I mean, that happens all the time. So it's shifting out of those improvement agendas into working with what is arising in the present moment exactly as it is arising. So it's that shift out of a future past orientation into a present orientation. And then the the fourth principle is we tend to view the locus of transformation as the individual, like I'm the one transforming. And I want to encourage everybody to shift to seeing that the locus of transformation is actually a complex ecosystem. And it's not the individual. In fact, if you, just to pick up the thread of what we were talking about with non-dual work, if you go look for the separate individual, you will not find it. That what you find instead, 
to, to say it in the Buddhist way, when you realize emptiness, you also realize dependent co-emergence. There is, everything is emerging in a dependent co-emergent way. Everything is unfolding in that way. And so that's the locus of transformation. And I think many, perhaps most coaching approaches, most psychotherapeutic approaches still view the locus of transformation as being the individual. That's why we do things like we assess the individual, you know, against some sort of assessment criteria, a competency model or, you know, a personality typology. And then we try to design some kind of intervention or development plan for that individual. And of course, we get a feather in our cap because we're customizing it to the to the individual, you know, this person is auditory or visual or kinesthetic, this person is such and such, and we're highly customizing it to that person. And of course, there's lots of good intentionality behind that, but it often misses what I think is the real reality, which is it's the complex ecosystem that is actually the locus of transformation. So even when you ask a person, like, how are you feeling? The emotion that they speak about or the felt sense that they speak about is arising as a point of contact with the complex ecosystem that is around them and that they are internally. It's a way of actually feeling the emergence of that complex ecosystem. It's not the feeling of an individual. And we make that mistake. So this is another one of those contrasts between the improvement paradigm and the unfoldment paradigm. And so this is really, these four principles are ways that you can enact the shift and start to play with this. And, you know, it's impossible for me to really, in the time that we have here, describe how we practice, you know, parts work, process work, presence work, non-dual work, or how we practice in these four styles of transformation but literally the first steps toward shifting into that are really starting to to enact these four principles in life and even without training i think you can start to play with that and i do mean play like to have a playful spirit about it don't have like a you know a work hard spirit about it like try it on see what opens up see how you feel when you're playing with this. That's what I would suggest. I, I love that so much. Um, the, the phrase that I've been playing with recently is the, the Walt Whitman idea of I contain multitudes. And it kind of, as you were saying about the difference between the individual and the complex system, almost expanding my awareness to encompass the, all of the multitudes, all of the parts, all of, all of the pieces, and that whatever I am is some kind of, it's like witnessing all of that, basically, that, that is arising in that codependent fashion. Wow, there's, there's so many directions <laughs> that I would love to go in. Um, I'd love to talk about Enneagram at some point and also the, the psychedelic and dream work, work that, you, that you're doing, but I feel like those might be best served for a future, a future conversation. So um, I'd love to close with four, got four rapid fire questions uh, if you're open to it. Sure, yeah. Great, so uh, the first question, which you've already touched on, but um. What do you see as the most common barrier to self-unfoldment? Honestly, I think the most common barrier to it is just the blind spot that we have about unfoldment in general. We just don't see it as an option in our culture. 
And if we don't see it as an option, we don't ever even try experiments or we don't even play over on that side. Hmm. If you were to describe the arc of the Aletheia journey in a single sentence, what might that be? So we start where we are and we wind up where we are. Many people, but the two places are radically different. <laughs> Many people mistakenly think that when we, when, you know, when we have a methodology that includes non-dual work, that somehow non-dual awakening is the omega, that that's what it's all about. We're trying to get there. That's not how I understand it. What we're actually trying to, to do, the omega, is being a full human being. The human being in, in our totality, in our fullness, is actually the omega. And what it takes to do that is to inhabit all of our depth consciously, to inhabit each one of these depths. Each one brings something, expresses something about what it is to be human that is not expressed by the others. And so that's, I think, really what it's fundamentally about. Mm. It reminds me of Mark Gaffney has the, the true self realization and then unique self-unfoldment is kind of after that. And that sounds very similar to what you're describing. If you were to describe the work that you do at Aletheia to a curious 12-year-old, what might you say? I think I, I would say, I've never tried that exactly, but I think I would probably talk about growing up in a way that the world still feels fun and enchanting and realizing the power of wonder. Mm. What is your greatest aspiration or vision that you have for your work with Aletheia in the coming years or decades? I think that we're living in times that are extraordinarily challenging. You know, we're facing a polycrisis that, you know, I like Jem Bendel's articulation in his recent book, uh, Breaking Together, you know, where he articulates seven different forms of collapse that are already happening. And in my view, there's a common root cause to the to this polycrisis, which is some people have called it a, a metacrisis. I think the common root cause is the particular way of being human that we've been. And these times call for us to reinvent what it is to be human. That yes, there will be technological responses to these crises. Yes, there will be political responses. Yes, there will be social movements. We need all of those things. But my where I currently stand in this is I don't believe all of those taken together will be sufficient. I think that the only sufficient response is an ontological response. And what that means is that we have to do something which has happened many times in our history, which is that we have to learn to be human in a different way. And once again, most of us are blind to that as a possibility because we have all of us only lived on this planet or only known people who have lived on this planet with one way of being human. And so we don't recognize that there are in fact a whole history of being human in different ways. So my hope for Aletheia is that it can play a contributing role in us rediscovering and reinventing what it is to be human and that we can learn to be human, to be fully human, in a way that is fundamentally sustainable, mutually dignifying, respectful, and that we can, you know, make some course corrections. Because it seems that this current way that we're being human on this planet 
if not redirected in some way, it seems to be self-terminating. And that to me is very concerning. So I view Aletheia really as my attempt to offer a, a serious response to that, that actually is not just a philosophical response, but a deeply pragmatic response. And as coaches, we get invited into the corporate world and the governmental world and the NGO world, and obviously into people's personal lives. And I think that we have an opportunity to bring genuine wisdom, traditions, wisdom practices into those places where perhaps the historical carriers of those practices, like spiritual traditions, don't get invited into those worlds necessarily in the same way. Those traditions have been unfortunately marginalized in our culture. And there's something really interesting that's happening in the coaching world that I think affords an injection of wisdom into places that otherwise don't have access to it. And that's why I'm passionate about training coaches to do this kind of coaching in the world, which is really different from the run-of-the-mill sort of self-improvement style of coaching, which, you know, a lot of the coaching industry is actually doing. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the perfect Trojan horse for the poetic attunement. I love it. <laughs> Um, I, I also thought of the, I don't know if you're familiar with Zach Stein's work, but he talks about the transition between homo sapiens to homo amor, which sounded like another encapsulation of, of this transition that we're in. Wow. Well, um, this has been so much fun, Steve. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. For listeners who would love to learn more about Aletheia and how they can maybe get involved, I know you have a a host of different offerings and trainings and, and things coming up. Where is the best place to, to find out about that? Maybe get in touch with you, people in your team. Yeah, you can go to our website, which is integralunfoldment.com. And we run uh, an advanced coaching program. Uh, we're starting our next level one program in February, um, upcoming next year. And uh, we also have programs uh, that take our approach and uh, train parents to work with their children in unfolding ways, to parent in unfolding ways. Um, and so we'll have one of those programs launching in January. And once you once you go through our level one coaching curriculum, that kind of opens up a world of possibilities beyond that, that uh, really the idea in designing Aletheia as a coach training school is I wanted to design the school I wish I had gone to originally that actually had uh, a path towards mastery over many years of dedicated practice and being in community and receiving feedback and really working to hone and refine. And so that's what we have right now. Beautiful. It sounds like it's becoming the, the ultimate how to human academy, which is something I've, I think the world desperately, desperately needs. Well, thank you. All of the, the links to those different uh, offerings will be in the, in the show notes as well. For those of you who are interested, um, also, anecdotally, I've had a number of friends go through level one and level two, and they've all just said incredible things about how transformative your training has been in their lives. And these are people that have already had a substantial amount of uh, personal development experience in, in different areas. Um, so for those of you listening, I, I highly, highly recommend checking out what Steve's up to. 
And to close this, I, I love to close with a, a line from Rilke. He said, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer, which feels very appropriate for what we've just been talking about. And uh, with that in mind, what is, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness? And what question might you leave our listeners with? You know, these days in terms of the question that's most alive in my consciousness is, it's like, what is this? I really feel like the deepest reaches of this work is what I call apprenticing the mystery. And Aletheia has unfolded in a way that I could never have predicted. I'm not actually sure where it came from. And if anybody should know, it should be me. It seems to have unfolded out of the complex system that I've been in. And its unfoldment is, it seems mysterious to me. It feels like something emerging into the world. And I just happen to be a particular kind of mouthpiece for it. So I have a lot of questions about that. That is just fascinating for me. And in terms of a question to leave listeners with, I guess I'm, I'm curious, and I would love to hear from listeners if, if they're willing to reach out, you know, what has touched you about this conversation? What sense of possibility has opened that maybe wasn't as open as before? And I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear from people. You know, our, our approach and our work is all about human contact. And so I'm, I'm an invitation for human contact. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And uh, what would be an email or, or what would be a good way for people to share reflections if they arise? You can reach me directly, steve at integralunfoldment.com. Beautiful. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, uh, your work is truly impacted me and I am just grateful for your presence and what you're what you're creating in the world so thank you you're welcome and thank you for this opportunity to talk with you and to, to share this work with your with your audience and uh, I too am very excited to learn more about your work and uh, I have a deep suspicion that that your depth of understanding of the nervous system there's a lot that uh, a lot that we could also learn from from your work so I hope for uh, for more conversations between us I hope for the same thing too. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care, Johnny. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Thanks for listening.